The COVID death toll in the United States tops 500,000. A winter storm leaves millions without power in zero-degree temperatures in Texas. A new independent report indicts the police in Aurora, Colorado, for the brutal murder of Elijah McClain. The capitalist government and the capitalist system in the United States continues to fail the people of this country. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's February 23rd, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent show by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. We can do this with you, but not without you. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out the show, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, we want to talk today about a number of really important topics, like all of the failures of capitalism we saw in Texas, like what is going on between the, the U.S. and Iran. But I know we want to start today with really big news out of Colorado. Right. We are going to turn to Colorado and the new independent investigation report about the brutal killing of Elijah McClain. But before we do that, Nicole, I want to say a few words about our introduction. We said the capitalist government and the capitalist system is failing the people of the United States. And I think it's so important when we talk about what we're trying to accomplish with this show, with the socialist program, because we're not simply bringing news and analysis, even though we do that. What we're trying to do is build a movement for social change, for radical change. Radical change means to get to the root of the problem. We might call it revolutionary change because we need a new system. The existing system is failing the people of this country and is imposing so much misery on people around the world. Just think of it. There are 500,000 families that lost loved ones during the past year in the United States, the richest country in the world, the country that tells the rest of the world, follow our example, follow our lead. We are exceptional. 50 million people are food insecure. 50 million, in this the richest country in the world. The Poor People's Campaign tells us that one out of every two people in the United States is either in poverty or near poverty. Because of COVID, 40 million people are facing the loss of their homes. They're facing eviction. I mean, this is a system that has demonstrated that it is a failure for the people of this country. I can remember when I was a political activist as a young person, I was involved in the civil rights movement. I was involved in the anti-war movement. I said to myself, wow, there are so many problems in society. There are so many mistakes. We have to fix the system. 
And then I came to the conclusion with the help of others who knew more than I did, that the mistakes weren't really mistakes, that the war in Vietnam was not simply a mistake, that racism and the abrogation of fundamental rights for the African-American population in the United States was not a mistake. It was, in fact, the consequence of the system working as the system was designed to work. And these mistakes were really emblematic of a problem much bigger than simply a policy decision or a policy mistake. They were the problems of the system. And I think that's what we're trying to accomplish with this show, is to help our audience understand that all of us need to be involved in the movement for social change and to realize that the solution is not going to come from the Democrats. It's not going to come from the Republicans. It's not going to come simply from talking. The people of this country have to be the motor force for change. It will be from the grassroots, not from Congress. You know, we all looked at the headlines this week with the other big scandal story regarding Ted Cruz. You know, while people were freezing to death in their homes in Texas, Ted Cruz made a trip to Cancun and people in Texas were, are you kidding me? Ted Cruz is going to Cancun to vacation while we don't have power, while we're literally, some of us, freezing to death. But there's another part of the scandal that hasn't been mentioned, which is, why was Ted Cruz available to go to Mexico? It's because the U.S. Congress took a break. The whole U.S. Congress went on vacation a week after the impeachment. So here you have a system, a government, where a half a million are dead, 50 million are food insecure, 40 million facing eviction. The Capitol was just stormed by this right-wing, ultra-right mob. And after a week of hard work watching videotapes, Congress decided to adjourn. And this is supposed to be the form of government that represents the people. Well, no, it doesn't. We need a new system, as we say in our introduction. We need a movement to build that system. And that's what the socialist program is all about. With that said, I want to turn now to Aurora, Colorado, Denver, Colorado, where there has been a mass movement for justice for Elijah McClain. Elijah McClain, who was brutally murdered by the Aurora police 18 months ago, the people leading that mass movement, that peaceful, large-scale mass movement in Aurora and Denver, a movement unprecedented in Aurora's history, they are facing decades in prison, decades because they led protests against the police abuse and misconduct and demanding justice. But now an independent investigation has shown that those leading the protests were right, that this was a brutal murder, and that the investigation of this police murder wasn't really an investigation, but nothing other than a cover-up. Let's turn to this breaking news. It comes yesterday. I want to play a short clip from CBS in Aurora. And then, Esther, let's take a deep dive into this very, very important breaking news story. Results from the independent report were released today. The 23-year-old was unarmed and had not committed any crimes when police stopped him back in 2019. The independent report was critical of how police and paramedics handled the situation. It found that McLean should not have been detained in the first place. Andrea Flores spoke to Elijah's mother today. I feel good knowing that my son's name is cleared. I feel good knowing that everybody can see the truth now that Aurora, Colorado, 
does employ killers and then they do what they can to cover it up. I want the police officers to be charged. I want the firefighters to be charged. Everybody that stood there and watched and did nothing to de-escalate needs to be charged. I miss his smile. I miss his laugh. I miss him. I just miss him. Yes, that damning report referred to in the news clip was released Monday about the death of Elijah McClain. And Elijah is the 23-year-old musician and massage therapist who in August 2019 was tackled and choked by Aurora, Colorado police before paramedics injected him with a powerful sedative. He suffered a massive heart attack on the way to the hospital where he was declared brain dead and then taken off life support six days later. The report was the result of an independent investigation by legal and medical professionals outside of Aurora. And it says point blank that the three police officers, Jason Rosenblatt, Randy Rodima, and Nathan Woodyard had no legal basis to even stop, less more frisk, violently retain, or put Elijah in a chokehold. The report begins with this paragraph, quote, The body-worn camera audio, limited video, and major crimes interviews with the officers tell two contrasting stories. The officers' statements on the scene and in subsequent recorded interviews suggest a violent and relentless struggle. The limited video and the audio from the body-worn cameras reveal Mr. McLean surrounded by officers, all larger than he, crying out in pain, apologizing, explaining himself, and pleading with the officers. The report adds, quote, The responding officers applied pain compliance techniques and restraints to Mr. McLean continuously from the first moments of the encounter until he was taken away on a gurney. These included arm bars, wrist locks, and officers applying their knees to Mr. McLean's large muscle groups and joints. The officers also sat or kneeled on Mr. McLean, and one officer threatened to have a dog bite him. The officers can be heard telling Mr. McLean to stop, stop, dude, stop fighting, and dude, just stop fighting. They described his behavior as violent, fighting, and struggling, and repeatedly remarked on his incredible strength, crazy strength, and superior strength. The vast majority of this treatment occurred after Mr. McLean was handcuffed and lying on the ground. The audio of the incident records Mr. McLean crying out in pain, apologizing, vomiting, and at times sounding incoherent. His words were apologetic and confused, not angry or threatening. He became increasingly plaintive and desperate as he struggled to breathe. He told officers he had his ID. This is continuing from the report. That his name was Elijah McLean and that, quote, I was just going home. I'm an introvert and I'm different. Going home. I'm just different. I'm just different. That's all. That's all I was doing. I'm so sorry. As Mr. McLean said this, one of the officers described him by radio to a dispatcher as still fighting. Mr. McLean continued saying he opposed violence, begged, forgive me, and said, you're all phenomenal. You are beautiful. Forgive me. As the officers waited for paramedics to arrive, Mr. McLean vomited and can be heard continually complaining about the pain and his difficulty breathing, saying, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Ow, that really hurt. You guys are too strong. It's just that I can't breathe correctly because as his voice trailed off for long periods of time, only occasional grunts and moans, but no words can be heard from Mr. McLean. The next key thing is that when paramedics show up, they do not immediately render aid to Elijah. They do not speak to him or attempt to speak to him. And then even though he was already not moving for at least a minute, These paramedics came over to him, injected him with what turned out to be a massive dose of a sedative called ketamine, 
which was enough for a man weighing at least 50 pounds more than he weighed. As I said, he went into cardiac arrest on the way to the hospital, where he was declared brain dead and then taken off life support six days later. The report goes on to explain how the investigation into Elijah McLean's death was not really taken seriously or either botched intentionally. Starting with the major crimes investigators, the incident was never referred to internal affairs investigators, and the investigation by the Aurora Police Department's Force Review Board was cursory and summary at best, it said. So responding to the report on Monday night at a city council meeting, several members of the public called from the state and across the country and even from Canada to call for the firing and prosecution of the officers and paramedics for Elijah's death. Lillian House, one of the organizers of peaceful protests about Elijah McLean's death, who was facing up to 50 years in prison for just being an organizer, spoke to the socialist program Monday night. I would highly recommend that people read this report, or at least the first eight pages, which are a summary of the report's findings. That's available on auroragov.org. It is really a scathing report, which confirms what we have known all along that there was no justification for what happened to Elijah and that in the aftermath, all of the so-called investigations weren't really investigating, but were orchestrating a cover-up. Also important in this report, which is not necessarily new, but it's important, is that the ketamine isn't what killed Elijah. Elijah was already dying when the ketamine was administered. And why this is so important is that these cops choked and beat Elijah McLean to death. And they need to face criminal charges. They need to face murder charges. This report makes it completely clear that the basis for a criminal trial was always there. And this is really important because there's actually still an open investigation at the state level to determine whether to take these cops to trial. And this report shows that without a doubt, the grounds are there. So Brian, Nicole and Walter, that was Lillian House. And this report is making a big impression, not only in Denver, but around the country for people who are fighting for justice for Elijah McLean. And this report comes as jurisdictions, including the state of Maryland, nearby where we are here in New York City, are considering laws to eliminate qualified immunity for police officers, which in effect allows abusive police to get away with murder. The New Mexico House of Representatives last week approved a bill that would allow people to sue the government agencies for violations of rights protected under the state constitution. And that state is following other states that are making similar laws. This just shows the incredibly racist nature of the criminal so-called justice system, more like the criminal injustice system, that the cops so far have not only, you know, not faced real consequences in their jobs, but haven't even been arrested, haven't been dealt with in any way when these people stopped frisked and had no right to do so and then choked to death a 23 year old man they say in the report the reason that they go after him is that he has on a ski mask well it's denver maybe it was cold who knows like having on a ski mask a type of clothing you're wearing is not a reason to go after somebody it's just really really disgusting and this report finally verifies and justifies and clears up the fact that what family members and organizers on the ground have been saying for so long is absolutely true. The police accounts are not, and that this is actually the case. This is for real. This is what's been happening. Let's go on to another story. We're going to come back to Denver and Aurora 
and the struggle for justice with Elijah McLean and the struggle for justice for the defendants like Lillian House, Joel Northam, and Eliza Lucero, and others who are facing decades in prison. We're going to come back at the very end of the show and touch base about that important case one more time. But Nicole, let's go on to Texas. Again, we mentioned Ted Cruz, the big story in the news. The scandal was that Ted Cruz tried to flee Texas and go to Cancun. Not unexpected. Ted Cruz is rich and privileged and powerful and not truly a representative of the people. But the failure in Texas is emblematic of the failure of a profit-driven system when it comes to the delivery of necessary services for the human beings who live in this country. Let's just talk about what happened. So as I think pretty much everyone in this country has seen at this point, there have been dozens of deaths, sweeping power outages, and horrendously cold, really freezing conditions throughout Texas. People are now facing bills in the thousands and even more than $10,000 for the people who actually had power for just heating and lighting their homes in the middle of the winter, in the middle of one of the worst storms Texas has seen in a long time. And even worse, some listeners may have seen last week images of empty downtown Houston office buildings that had power. But then many families, as you know, as we all know, around the state and around the region, including like the Pinedas family who are now suing the grid operator, ERCOT, for the death of their son who died in the cold. They live in a mobile home park that was left without power. There were many homes left without power while these office lights were on. And listeners won't be surprised by this, and I know none of y'all will be surprised by this, that the profit motive under this capitalist system is what caused these problems. And I'm going to lay out how that's the case because it's very, very clear when you look at the details. Texas has its own state-based grid operator called ERCOT. The rest of the country has regional grid operators. And since they're interstate commerce under U.S. law, it means they're regulated by the federal government under the FERC. FERC. Because ERCOT, the Texas grid operator, is only in Texas, it's not regulated by the feds. Though, of course, you know, this isn't constitutional or anything, and Congress could make that change if they wanted to. ERCOT operates on the market-based system, this, you know, conservative value system of the free market, meaning there are few consumer protections, lots of quote-unquote consumer choice, and very few regulations that are in place. On the consumer choice end, there are 220 companies that you can choose from to provide you your energy. Some of them have really stable pricing and some of them have this really of the moment pricing based on how many people are demanding energy at that moment. But try to imagine trying to figure out how to choose between 220 companies. And of course, they're all running ad campaigns at you telling you that they're the cheapest, they're the best, they're the most reliable you know, as an aside, ad companies are obviously such a waste of existence and of money, and they're only necessary if the society you live in is profit-driven. Otherwise, we could spend money on other things. Another point here, unlike every other grid operator, Texas doesn't pay power producers to have power available at any time, even if it goes unused for long periods. This is, of course, inefficient in a capitalist system to do something like that, just like what we've been talking about over the last year now, Having a stockpile of N95 masks for a pandemic, also inefficient in terms of you know profit motive, in terms of a capitalist system. But having power producers to just have power available, stockpiling N95 masks, all these things are a great idea if you're managing you know based on people's needs. We want to make sure people have power. We want to prevent deaths. So many energy producers, instead of making some guaranteed money year round because they're being paid to have this energy available, even if it's not used... In Texas, they don't make money unless there's a really high demand like this kind of crisis. 
there is a cap on prices, but it's at an extraordinarily high level, which is how people are seeing these thousands of dollars of bills. But, you know, as bad as ERCOT is in Texas, these grid operators nationwide are largely staffed by utility industry insiders. Their operations aren't subject to open record requests, and they often run closed meetings where the media and the public can't attend, take notes, hear anything, respond. They also, of course, don't optimize any of what they're doing for climate change only for profit under capitalism, which is only sometimes minimally constrained by federal regulations under FERC. And then again, Texas isn't constrained at all under FERC. I want to quote from a New York Times piece, a quote from the creator of Texas's energy market design. This is William Hogan. He's a professor of global energy policy at Harvard. He said in an interview this past week that the high prices reflected the market performing as it was designed. Quote, as you get closer and closer to the bare minimum, these prices get higher and higher, which is what you want. I mean, <laughs> that's a ridiculous thing to say. Well, there are dozens of people literally freezing to death. That's not what we want. Notably, though, ERCOT's specific problems are a big factor in what's causing all these outages and deaths and massive bills. Something really similar happened in California in 2000 and 2001. One energy consultant recently said that the California situation was really similar and, quote unquote, caused a wave of bankruptcies as retailers and customers discovered that they were on the hook for bills 30 times their normal levels. And he goes on to say that he expects the same thing to happen here. All of this shows that having this for-profit system isn't what we need. Under a socialist government and a socialist system that's actually built for what we need, not for profit, we could plan for people's needs rather than profit. One thing a lot of people think we should do that I think makes a ton of sense is employ people and spend money on improving and winterizing and summarizing people's homes. Then we could use less energy anyway year-round helping with climate change, and it would protect people if there are blackouts, and there probably will be blackouts. We could also modernize the grid. That would help with blackouts, too. We could extend it nationwide. That would help minimize blackouts. And, you know, like this Texas state-based system, it would do the opposite and make sure that if somebody in Oklahoma needed power and somebody in Florida had solar energy running, you know, in the middle of the summer, it would still work in Oklahoma. You could transfer it. We just we have to plan for what we need instead of for profit. And that would change this entire situation. We would not be dealing with what we're seeing. Walter, before we switch to the next topic, which, of course, is the future of Donald Trump and Trumpism, I want to get your comments. I mean, you're involved in a lot of community-based work in Philadelphia, organizing people to meet people's needs. I mean, nothing is more essential in a modern society than the ability to access electricity, to have light, and to have heat, especially in the winter or cooling in the summer months. It's really something that this system can't do the obvious thing that must be done in order to meet human needs. And for people to get $16,000 energy bills because their lights actually stayed on during a winter storm, as if that's some sort of great privilege and prize and reward, it says so much. Yeah, I mean, it says so much about the fundamental irredeemability of the system. I mean, if there is a political and social and economic order that exists that leads to an outcome like that, somebody who's suffering from a horrible disaster that the eyes of the whole world is on, and they get a $16,000 bill just for trying to keep their home habitable, and all of the other terrible 
needless suffering that people have endured as a consequence of the storm and the collapse of the infrastructure is just unbelievable. I mean, if you need proof of the fact that we need a new system, I mean, here it is right here. And in these disasters, you also see the best in people. I mean, the best in in working class people where people help out their neighbors, they provide people with shelter when they have nowhere to go. They share, you know, what little supplies and food they have, you know, political organizations I know are carrying out mutual aid activities. But really, the people who should be running society, they come out and they, you know, show their best in periods of crisis like this one, where the system is so completely incompetent and failing people. So, you know, it's both at the same time. It's a display of the inadequacy of this system. And it also points to the people who should be running things, poor and working class people. I mean, imagine if that basic instinct, that basic instinct of solidarity, compassion, helping people survive when they're in trouble. Imagine if those people had power. Imagine if we had state power, the ability to actually organize things like an energy grid, the ability to organize and centralize and plan the housing market and the job market. I mean, that is really the way to fundamentally put to bed these dire social problems that are on horrible display, horrific display, display in terrible fashion during this disaster. Yeah. And again, this system is not divinely mandated. All systems, all governments, all ruling classes say this is the perfect system, or even if it's imperfect, it's the system and it will last forever. I mean, the same message to the serfs from the kings and queens and priests in medieval Europe, you know, this is the system. This is the way God wanted this system to be. And of course, finally, when the system topples and people move on to another system, when there is in fact progress, people look back at that and think, oh my God, how could human beings have lived like that? And that's exactly how people in society going forward will look back at the case of Elijah McClain or the innumerable victims of racist police violence in America or people who are freezing to death in their homes because there's a winter storm in Texas or because a half a million Americans died during COVID, people will look back and say, how could people have lived like this? I just wanted to add, Brian, Walter, and Nicole, that if you're a news junkie like I am, sort of, I mean, watching TV over the weekend was foolproof of the failures of capitalism. Not only were people dying in the cold and in the dark in Texas, but they were receiving bills up to $16,000 for electricity bills. A Boeing airplane scattered its engine parts all over a Denver suburb. And you could hear a CNN commentator being an apologist for Boeing, the huge airplane producer, saying, well, airplanes routinely, you know, scatter their parts, you know, shed their parts onto the ground. You know, luckily no one was hurt, but some of these pieces weighed tons. And then, of course, on Monday, we passed, you know, a half million COVID deaths. So it was just a weekend for anyone really following the news that the system is the sickness, as you say. The system is the sickness. Let's go on, Walter. Donald Trump, things are not looking good for Donald Trump at one level. The Supreme Court on Monday rejected his last-ditch effort to not have his tax returns released to Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance. There are numerous other possible criminal prosecutions. There are civil cases being filed by corporations and banks against Donald Trump and his organization. Many more are likely to come. 
But Trump is the featured speaker at the upcoming conservative political action conference on Sunday. Anyway, what's your take? Yeah, well, I agree with you. I mean, there's kind of two tracks that are going to determine Trump's future. There's the political track and the legal track. And I agree with you. The legal track is not looking great for Donald Trump right now. A lot of his financial information is going to get out there. There's also the potential prosecution in Georgia on the basis of his call to the state secretary of state, uh, the election official. But I think that the political track for Trump is looking quite good in terms of his attempt to stage a comeback in the aftermath of the January 6th attack on the Capitol building and efforts to subvert the election. I think it's actually looking quite good. So the conservative political action conference, very important, especially for the right wing hardcore of the Republican Party. There are reports that Donald Trump in his big speech to CPAC will refer to himself as the presumptive 2024 nominee for president. And you know what? Even though Donald Trump loves to exaggerate and boast, I, I don't think that's too out there for him to say that. I mean, all of the opinion polls that have taken place so far have reflected that. Now, it's obviously extremely early, but there is, I think, evidence that Donald Trump remains the dominating figure in the Republican Party. And in fact, that the momentum is on his side, that the extent to which he's dominating the Republican Party has increased. So, for instance, between January 20th and 26th, polling firm Echelon Insights took a poll of Republican voters. They said... In the next primary, would you vote for Donald Trump or would you vote for anybody else? So they told together all other candidates. And so 48% said Donald Trump and 40% said anybody else. And then that same polling firm asked that same question three weeks later between February 12th and 18th. And 55% said Donald Trump and only 32% said somebody else. Again, the momentum's on his side. On the question of Trump's threat to form a third party, a patriot party. When he first raised that threat, there was an opinion poll that showed about a third of Republicans would stick with the Republican Party, a third of Republicans would split with Trump, and a third weren't sure. A new poll just came out in the last couple of days that showed that it's actually two to one now, people saying that they would break with the Republican Party. 46% said that they would leave and join a Trump third party. 27% said that they would stick around with the Republicans. Okay, but Walter, I'm going to jump in here, and I want to get Nicole and Esther's final comments on this topic. Okay, I hear what you're saying, but one, if Trump breaks from the Republican Party, which would be the you know, devastating to the Republican Party. If they formed a second ultra-right-wing party, it would be the Republicans and another ultra-right party. That will unite the Republican establishment to make sure that Trump is brought down through the courts. And secondly, if the capitalist class as a whole is kind of done with Donald Trump, I mean, the big capitalists who were thankful to him for all the tax giveaways, they have a lot of power. The state has a lot of power. And I believe that they're done with Trump. They want to bring him to a close. I mean, this could end up being an epic battle. And the reason Trump was such a diehard in trying to overturn the election results in the 2020 election, even though it seemed hopeless, he kept going in spite of the fact that he lost in court. He lost when the Electoral College certified it. He knew that Mike Pence wasn't going to change the discourse on January 6th. He kept going because Donald Trump, this was our analysis, Donald Trump was afraid that he was going to be criminally prosecuted, that he and his kids were going to be criminally prosecuted. And that, in fact, is exactly what's happening. So 
I think that Trump knows that he knew before that his days would be numbered if he left the White House. That's why he fought so hard to keep it. It was a very narrow interest on his part. But I think that, in fact, is what he's facing. Nicole, let's get your comments for like a minute or 45 seconds. Esther will give you the final word on that topic. Yeah, I definitely think that's right. And I think further proof is that now that, you know, there has been some Supreme Court rulings, now that you're starting to see Trump possibly facing, we don't know yet, but it is on the path for him to be facing consequences for a lot of his financial crimes. It makes sense that he's really starting to ramp back up again, and he's securing the spot at CPAC and speaking, and he's trying to get more media attention, especially because his Twitter handle is gone. So I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, I think the problem is going to be for the elites, at least, is going to be his base, because a lot of his base now, I'd be so curious to hear and to compare numbers from what happened right after the insurrection. But his base now, as of mid-February, is saying only 4% say the impeachment trial made them less supportive. I mean, I think that makes sense. But more importantly, only 4% of Trump supporters call what happened on January 6th an attempted coup inspired by President Trump. That's a really, really small number. And 58% of them think that it was mostly Antifa inspired. So, you know, that's definitely going to be something the elites are going to have to contend with. Esther, do you have your crystal ball? Well, I don't have a crystal ball, but I did hear Matt Schlapp, who heads CPAC on CNN. And to hear this person basically still tell the big lie that the election was fraudulent, You know, this isn't someone carrying a flag or, you know, dressed up in QAnon paint or anything like that. This is a man with a suit and tie tell a national audience that the election was fraudulent and, you know, that there was voter fraud really struck me that there is a very passionate Trump base that is not just the people who stormed the Capitol, but people who in organizations like CPAC believe that Trump is the leader of the Republican Party and will remain the leader of the Republican Party, and they intend to support him in that way. And what also struck me was that when these people talk about election fraud, they don't want to recognize that the original election fraud was perpetrated against the people they're trying to keep from voting. So basically, they want to say that people mailing in ballots during a pandemic was fraud, but they don't recognize the centuries of voter suppression, which was the real election fraud and the real voter fraud, and that they only want the people to vote who are white conservatives. They don't want African-Americans to vote. They don't want brown people to vote. They don't want indigenous people to vote. They don't want Asians to vote. They don't want that whole coalition that came together in Georgia to vote and to turn that state blue. They don't want those people to vote. That's also very clear that that is a key part of this emerging Trump coalition that's going to be a part of this battle. Well, we'll have an opportunity to evaluate some of that next week in this segment of the socialist program, the In the News segment on Tuesday. We'll talk about what Donald Trump said and what the response was from the people and from the media when he speaks there on Sunday. I want to end on two short notes. One is Of course, tomorrow, Wednesday, we have our discussion with Professor Richard Wolf about the economy. We're going to talk about Texas again, about how could it be that in Texas, people got $16,000 
energy bills because the lights actually stayed on during the one week of a winter storm when so many people lost power. We'll talk about the dynamics of capitalism that led to such an atrocity. On Thursday, we have an amazing discussion with Professor Mohammed Morandi from University of Tehran. Uh, we'll talk about what Iran's reaction is to the Biden administration's refusal so far to lift sanctions on Iran and demanding more concessions from Iran before the Biden administration re-enter the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran nuclear arms deal. Just this morning, Iran has stopped the voluntary implementation of the additional protocol to the Non-Proliferation Treaty Safeguards Agreement that allowed the International Atomic Energy Agency to carry out short-notice inspections of the country's nuclear facilities. This is breaking. This is from this morning. Iran, in an official statement, said, The goal of the Islamic Republic and the definite plan of the government are to realize the rights of the Iranian people, intelligently and decisively confront the illegal actions and policies of the United States, and lift the cruel and inhumane sanctions against the Iranian nation as soon as possible. Again, we're going to keep following that story, and we'll have this interview on Thursday to talk about U.S.-Iran relations with Professor Mohammed Morandi. I want to go out where we started, the epic case of Elijah McClain, the new independent report that basically indicts the police for his killing. They also indict the police for the farce called The Investigation that was really just a cover-up. We played a short clip from Lillian earlier in the show, Lillian House, one of the defendants in Denver, she and others have led the peaceful mass protest demanding accountability for the police, that the police be charged for the murder of Elijah McLean, about the response of people in Denver and in Aurora to this investigation report, which proves that the people organizing the protests for the past 18 months were right and that the police were wrong. And right now, people in Aurora and Denver are organizing, using this report as an organizing tool. As we go out, let's hear uh, just a couple minutes again from Lillian House talking about the centrality of this report in the bigger struggle for justice in Denver and Aurora. But as far as what the city can do, you know, the city commissioned this report at the height of the protest movements in July of 2020 because they claimed they didn't have the facts yet to take action. And now they have the facts. They're in front of them and there are no more excuses. And so what we are saying is that now we demand action. Time is up. And first things first, all of these cops and paramedics need to lose their jobs. That has not happened yet. And last night, in fact, there was a large speak out at the city council meeting to demand this. The city council actually tried to stifle public comment, but really in an incredible demonstration, some 70 people stayed in the meeting for hours to make themselves heard. And, you know, I think this is a demonstration of what we have learned over these past 18 months, which is that not one speck of justice is going to be won without a fight tooth and nail from the people. And so we are going to continue to fight until we get justice for Elijah McClain. And big shout out to the Socialist Program for continuing to cover this. Thanks. Again, that was Lillian House. I want to encourage people to go to denverdefense.org to show their support for all of those who have been arrested facing decades in prison because they were demanding justice for Elijah McClain. 
You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.